0: You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. Who you are drives what you do. Who you conceive yourself to be will drive what you do in life. In Ephesians 5 ties the gospel to our identity, our who and ties it to our what, the what of what we do. Look at verse one and two with me. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Because of the gospel, that's what we call the gospel, that Christ loved us and gave himself up for our sins. Because of that, Therefore, we imitate God or we act like God. We walk in the loving ways of God. And how does it feel as a Christian to walk after God's ways? Is it a guilt ridden experience of, well, Christ has done so much, so now I gotta like do my part? Is it a shame smothering uh, experience where we're smothered by shame, just hoping to one day live up and get God's approval? Is it a fear ridden experience? Experience like an orphan in a corner that's just hoping maybe I really belong, maybe I don't. No. For the Christian to follow after Jesus, to imitate God, it's an experience of being a beloved kid, even when we're kicking and screaming. The Christian follows Jesus, not in a position to earn God's love, but because they're loved you must be a beloved child before you love God or anybody else well. It's from that position that we learn to walk after Jesus. Our deepest identity becomes a love child of God. And when we think about loving and walking in love, we often drift to how we treat others. But before we go to how we treat others, we have to think about what it means to actually love God. That you, as a person, have a way to love God. As Jesus says, the first and greatest commandment is to love a God with all of our hearts, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and from that place love others. And look what Jesus says: He teaches us how to love God. Take a look with me at the Gospels. It says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus uh, helping people understand here in Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I tell you? Jesus isn't asking us to save ourselves nor do something that Jesus wouldn't do. Look how Jesus describes his very life. He says if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love Jesus follows God he's the god man himself but he follows the ways of God and us if you're a Christ follower if you're a Christian we follow Jesus it's like a little train my son gets so pumped up he's like dad I'm the line leader I was like how are you the line leader again he goes Well, such and such wasn't up to it. So I became the line leader again. (laughs) Way to go, son. That's a host for you. Just stepping in. Little domineering, but stepping in. Jesus follows God. We follow Jesus. And it says our obedience is an act of love. And this is exactly what Jesus lays out in some of his most famous passages. Look with me at Matthew 16. You've heard it a thousand times, but maybe not thought of it like this, that this is love. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We don't follow Jesus to prove ourselves as much as to say, I love this guy, so I obey him. I love this guy, so I trust him. I love this guy, so what I have to bear in the process doesn't matter as much. That I'm willing to bear the cost and the cross that when we experience salvation, the forgiveness and freedom through faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus resets our direction. He resets the direction we're going. We don't just continue on and put Jesus in the backpack, pull out in case of emergencies on the trail. No, we change trails and we follow Jesus and we become worshipers, disciples, family, servants, witnesses of God. Obedience is following God's commands, following God's commands God's way, right away, and all the way. What Jesus does, how we imitate God, is this obedience. We don't obey our sin any longer, and we don't obey ourselves any longer. Simply, your love for God is expressed in your obedience to God. Now, love is a primary attribute of God, but more so God is holy. God is other. God is set apart. God is not like us. God is perfectly pure. God has no faults. God has no evil. God has no lies or untruths about him. So when we imitate God, we pursue his holiness and holiness is a concept in nearly every single book of the Bible, but it's spelled out so beautifully and clearly in the little red book of Leviticus. Look what it says in Leviticus 11. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are called out of something. We are called, they were called out of slavery and delivered from bondage and slavery. And that predicts the gospel, that we too would be called out of the bondage of sin and slavery. But it goes on. Holiness is more than just leaving something. Look what else it says in Leviticus 20. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. We're not just called out and away from sin. We're called to someone. We're called to God himself. We're not just holy because God likes holiness. We're holy because God is holy and brings them to us. How does a sinful people dwell with a holy God? Well, they're forgiven by Christ and then they learn to walk in Christ's ways. They learn to enjoy a holy fellowship with God. We don't go back to the ways of the world, but we embrace a new identity as God's children. And Romans 12.1 puts it this way, the most clearly, I think, anywhere in the New Testament. Look with me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Church, we don't talk about holiness that much in our culture. We do a lot here, but holiness, your holiness before God, is worship. It brings God glory. It's your way to worship God with your life. Think about that. And see, being holy towards God actually makes us loving towards others. There's an order to it. As we love God, we actually start to love others rightly. And that's where this text leads, of how to be holy towards God with our bodies, namely our sexuality and our speech. And why are those two singled out of all the things? Well, you don't have to live very long to know that sexual immorality and crude speech kind of make a mess of life. All the worst circumstances you've ever been in probably had to do with sexual immorality some wrong speech, some lying, and maybe some violence thrown in there. Most difficult problems in our society, most difficult problems in our lives live right there. But the good news is this, that Jesus is the only one who can both forgive that and set you on a new direction. Let's look at holy sexuality first. What does God want from us in regards to our bodies? Verse three, It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who's covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The Greek word here used for sexual immorality is a really recognizable one. It's pornea. Pornea, it's transliterated right here as pornea. And you can easily see this is where our culture uses the English word porn. And this word is used throughout the New Testament to describe all sexual activity outside of a loving marriage between a man and a woman. God has made sex as a gift for procreation and pleasure inside of a marriage, and in no other place. This means extramarital affairs, premarital sex, all heterosexual or homosexual activity is sin. And this includes things like prostitution or today's digital pornography, which is digital prostitution. It's an exchange of bodies over images. And the ancient culture of Ephesus and the world of the Bible was very sexually active. The local pagan religion in Ephesus was based on fertility. It was celebrated with prostitutes. And this is good to remember because I think we imagine the Bible was this like sexually strict and pure culture that celebrated and did this stuff anyways. And that's just not true. But rather the people this is written to were a lot like our culture. This crowd of new converts with all different beliefs and all different experiences in their life hearing a radical new sexual ethic from God, a sexual ethic that's based on who we belong to in our new identity, not what our desires happen to be. And this verse mentions all impurity. It links these two ideas together, sexual morality and all impurity to encompass everything else sexual one could partake in. The NIV translates it this way. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. The idea is that when someone looks at the church, the local church of the people of God, that no outsider, no unbeliever could look at it and say, hey, I can name sexual sins among you. He's saying it ought not be, that there ought not even be a hint of sexual immorality in our lives or in the lives of one another. See, the Bible is aware of that our culture is way off the rails. That's because it says, but among you. It's not here just critiquing the outside or telling us to point fingers at the outside. It says, hey, among you, let's worry about ourselves first. Let's worry about our own hearts first. Let's worry about our own lives first. It's not old-fashioned to reserve sex for marriage. It's following Jesus at his word. It was revolutionary to them then. It's revolutionary to us now. And Jesus takes a standard for sexual purity up past physical acts to a matter of the heart. Matthew 5, Jesus says this. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus takes it to a heart level. It's not just what we do. It gets into what we think and desire and meditate on. And at this heavy, heavy moment, I do love verse 29. So it says, if your eye, even your good eye, remember a world without glasses. So some guy's like reading this, looking for a loophole. He goes, oh, pluck out my eye. You can have the bad one. Come on. So if your eye... Even your good eye causes you to lust. Gouge it out. Throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And Jesus is using this hyperbole to say, I want you to take it this serious that you're willing to lose limbs in your fight against lust and sexual immorality. Jesus teaches a sexual ethic so radical that demands not even a hint of impurity, yet within marriage, God's word urges loving, passionate sex between the marriage partners. Read Song of Songs. Read Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says a couple should have sex regularly within their marriage. So what's the deal? Does God just love policing sex? Is this just a a hobby horse for him that he just loves getting as involved and making people as uncomfortable as possible? Or is something greater at work? Or something deeper at work, even in this passage? Let's go right back to verse three and five. It's right here. But sexual immorality and all impurity, they're kind of linked together with the and, or covetousness must not even be named among you as improper improper among the saints. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, kind of linked together there, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. And so the text is intentionally putting sexual immorality and all impurity together or coveting as if, and in many ways, that sexual immorality and coveting are the same sin. We don't think about it that way, but God sure does. We don't use the word covet very much. And to covet means this in the dictionary so we can brush up together. Covet is to desire wrongfully, inordinately, or without due regard for the rights of others. And so when it uses covet here, it means all three of those meanings. It's used to desire wrongfully, to desire someone for sex that's not within God's design, to desire inordinately, to desire in an obsessive or dominating, worshiping way. But probably the third definition is the closest to what we're talking about, that to covet is to desire without due regard for the rights of others. Chiefly for the rights of God Himself. See, all people belong to God. We're rightfully His. Sure, I have ownership over my choices and my life and my body, but God has ownership over me whether I believe in Him or not. Because in the Christian Bible, the Christian theology, He's the creator, I'm a creature. I come from him. We have no existence apart from God himself. And when we start to see it that way, and we say it here a lot this way, that we're created by God and for God. So when we sin sexually, we're engaging with another person who ultimately doesn't belong to us. God has not given us consent to the relationship apart from a loving marriage. We're taking something that's not ours. We're lusting over something that's not ours. That God has given sex as a gift for procreation and pleasure only within a marriage between a man and a woman. And to use sex in any other way against a a picture or a person is to take something, to lust after something, to enjoy something, to desire something that simply isn't ours. It's coveting. As everyone belongs to God, even ourselves. Sex isn't our right, but a gift from God. And anything less is violating God himself. And it's disregarding the very holiness of God. Exodus 20, verse eight says this, is the 10th commandment about coveting. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant. It takes its sexual right away in this commandment, or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor. The 10th commandment in often leads to other sins like lying, stealing, hating, murdering, adultery. But coveting violates God before it violates our neighbor because it says in essence that God, what you've provided me is simply not enough. And I know better. And I'm gonna covet and desire into my heart. And the longer I do this, the more willing I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get it. It violates saying that, God, you don't know as good as I do. And it puts us in the place of God. We put ourselves as God, that we know best. And our culture will tell you that sex is everything, that our sexuality is the defining factor of our identity. But our culture is also confused because it will also tell you that sex is nothing at all. So take it as pleasure or as a transaction for money or just consent, and you're good to go. But God's telling us the truth, that sex is a gift. It's not the God of our life, and it's not gross, but it's a gift according to his design for marriage. And God isn't just specifying things just for sex. God designs every part of our life and body, including how we use our tongues and our holy speech. Look what it says in verse four and six. It says, obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And I love the straightforwardness of this. They just say, hey, Christian, crude talk is just not for you. It just isn't a part of your life. Just let it go. The world talks this way. You don't have to. You don't have to speak errantly or curse nastily or joke crudely. You didn't then, you don't have to now. Ladies, if you want to know the direction of a young man or an old man's life, watch his tongue. James 3 tells us the tongue is the rudder of the ship. Where your tongue goes, so you will go. It's a quick check on who we are and where we're going. And from when you've become a Christian, the hope is that your speech would just grow wiser and wiser and wiser that over time you'd find yourself using your words for thanksgiving instead of anything else, instead of boasting, instead of complaining, instead of gossiping, instead of crude joking. There's a thousand ways to sin with the tongue. It's something that can light the whole forest on fire, as James says. But there's one way to stop it, is to start to offer your speech to God in thanksgiving that you would choose as this passage suggests to meditate what is good, right, and true and go after that stuff and drop the rest. That it's okay to say, I can be a little boring in the world's eyes. I can have less to say in the world's eyes. I don't have to have the last word. I don't have to tell stories that are vulgar. I don't have to use my words in ways that are profane. I can just be quiet or use my speech to build people up. When was the last time you sat down and encouraged someone eyeball to eyeball? That you said, my tongue is actually about building them up instead of tearing someone down behind their back or doing anything else with it just to say, God, I'm going to use my tongue today to give thanks to you, to worship my face off and actually look my spouse, my roommate, my friend, my child, my parent in the eyes and encourage them and say, this was given for life, not to burn down my life. We have a gift. Our bodies are a gift. It's a little off topic, but what if we worked out and and tried to eat right because we loved our bodies instead of hated them? See, God has a plan for all of you. Not just specific parts, but he is hitting on these today. Today. And there's the warning is here. It's verse five and six. This warning starts and it drops into the seriousness of all this talk. Verse five and six says this. It says, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, who has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you of empty words. Don't let anyone tell you different, church. Don't let anyone tell you different. Don't If anyone says something different, the Bible's already saying they're wrong. It's empty. It's unfulfilling. It's empty calories. Don't believe it. Let no one deceive you of empty words. This is the truth instead. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's best sometimes to read the scripture very plainly. To continue in sin as a way of life reveals ultimately we love and worship something other than Jesus. The thing we obey or worship or value instead of Jesus is what the Bible would call an idol. An idolater is someone who lives and loves idols. Idols are the things that drive sinful behaviors. And I want to give an example because it's a little bit complicated of a topic. For example, I want to be accepted in a a dating relationship. So I pursue sexual immorality to make them like me to take the relationship up a notch. Acceptance is the idol driving the behavior, and I value their acceptance more than resting in God's acceptance of me as his beloved child. That's the idol. It's acceptance. The symptom is sexual immorality, but the idol is acceptance or something else. Here's another example. I'm working in the Amazon factory and in the back at work, some of the guys, they use crude language and they laugh and tell dirty jokes. And uh, I'm uncomfortable telling dirty jokes, but hey, I'm having a good laugh with the guys because man, I really, really want to fit in. I'm new here. Well, comfort is the idol there. I'm doing anything to stay comfortable rather than be othered by not laughing or not participating. And that comfort That drive to pursue it means I want comfort more than holiness with God, who said explicitly don't do these things. That's not for you to partake in, in coarse joking. When we disregard God's holy ways, it reveals we're treasuring something or someone over God. And if we refuse to repent of these sins and continue in them, it reveals that the gospel hasn't changed our hearts truly. And therefore, we should have no confidence our eternity has been changed either. That's what this passage is saying, that we don't save ourselves, but our life does get evidence to the good fruit God is bringing or the bad fruit that comes, as Jesus says, from the heart. And my job as pastor is to tell you the truth. I don't take pleasure in tough passages, but rather I love you too much to avoid or skip them or water them down. It's God's truth. It's not Justin's opinion hour. And if you feel the darkness of your sin now, I have really good news for you. Because look where this passage goes, church. Verse seven. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Don't partner with folks that are doing this. Say no to it. For at one time you were darkness. Look what it says. It says you were darkness. Not that you were walking in darkness, but it says, hey, you once were a part of darkness, the sin and evil in the world. But now, but now you are light in the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness and instead expose them. It is shameful to even talk about the things ungodly people do in secret, but their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. One day, all things will be revealed. And one of the things that will be revealed is that you, if you are walking in the Lord, if you've followed the Lord, are actually part of the light, not the darkness. Who you are is a beloved children of the light. That's why darkness should have no part in your life. That's why you can walk away from it. Jesus came to bring us into the light. He's not surprised at our sin. He came for our sin. He's not shocked and surprised. He came for it, church. And he's making a way for us today. Not just in the super past, but in the right now. That if you feel and see this darkness of your life, repent and turn to the light. Because look at this promise in verse nine. It says, so walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found as all is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing the Lord. If you're confused as dark as this light, ask your friends. Ask your friends and say, give me the honest feedback. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about that dumb joke I said? What do you think about this? It's okay to need help. It's okay to need help. But look at this wild, wild promise. For the light makes everything visible. That is why I said, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. God promises to give you light. He's not promising you're in darkness and doom and and you're doomed. He says, my promise is I will give you light. To anyone who comes to me, I will give you light. Whatever the darkness is, as dark as you think it is, it's not, as, it's not gonna overcome Jesus's light. For all who turn and confess, who all to bring their sins into the light, the sin loses its power and you learn to see what's visible. You learn what is good, right, and true. You learn to follow the Lord. God has promised you light, church, amen? Christ will shine on you. Not might shine on you. Not I hope he shines on me. But Christ will. Your darkness will not overcome the light of the risen Christ. I have noticed over and over, folks get serious about killing their sin when they let others in. Folks get serious about killing their sin when they let others in. Look at verse one and two again. Therefore be imitators of God as a beloved child or children. We're in this together. We follow the same Christ. We are meant to encourage and help each other walk out of the darkness together as children, not child alone and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. Church, belovedness comes before obedience. He loved you when you were still sitting in the dark. The good news of the gospel is that God's love comes for us long before we started to look for him. That's how you know it's not gonna leave you because it didn't come because you were doing great. It came because he knew you were in the darkness. Ultimately, we cannot stop our sins until we believe we're beloved. If we try to obey to win God's love, we'll miss it. We obey because we're loved, not to get love. Jesus is obedient as this fragrant, perfect offering to God that we can trust him. And when he is our salvation, not our good behavior. And that's the power of the gospel church. That we've all committed sexual immorality. We've all said dumb or evil things. We've all done impure things. Likely this week, if you feel like, no, I haven't done any of that stuff this week, go to Exodus 20, read the 10 commandments over and over until you find something. It won't take long. I, I don't think you'll make the first reading. It's easy to become an idolater. It's easy to trust something else in a moment or in a pattern other than Jesus. And the invitation, the application today is to say, I see the darkness and I'm going to turn, repent, bring it into the light and follow Jesus instead. That I have a choice in my life to follow the light and the light isn't running out. It's not a bulb that's burning out. It's 10,000 times 10 million times 10 billion suns of power to burn away our sin, our shame, our guilt, and give us a new way to live today and every day until we're called home. Amen. There's forgiveness to be found in Christ. There's freedom from the darkness. It's only Jesus who makes our idols seem small, worthless, and petty.